Well, there are two things uh, I am certain of. The one is that the man you applauded is not the man who stands before you. Um, the reality is that we are, none of us, what we are esteemed by men to be. And the Lord knows what we are and yet loves us. The second thing is that our Lord Jesus Christ is a great deal more than we imagine him to be. And so while we sometimes give our praise and applause to man, we are here tonight because our Lord Jesus Christ deserves our love and our affection, our adoration, our service, our obedience, our everything. And uh, what a joy it is to be in this place. And uh, tonight as I was uh, looking over and seeing Pastor James Coates and uh, I know that Pastor Tim Stevens is over here, and to think that these men were a while back in prison and that we're able to be together is such a joy. I want to read from Psalm 44. Psalm 44. Psalm 44, verse 1 says, verse, first verse, we have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days in the times of old. And the psalmist goes on to recount some of what the Lord did. And, and then at the very end of the psalm, he says this, verse 23. Awake, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Wherefore hidest thou thy face and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaveth unto the earth. Arise for our help and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. Amen. I invite you to pray with me for a moment. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to be together in this place. It seems in a small, very small way that we have a bit of a foretaste of the heaven that is coming, that great reunion when we shall be with the saints and so much more will be in the presence of our King. Lord, how we long for that. Uh, we long to see our Savior, to fall at his feet, to serve and to worship you as you deserve to be served and to be worshiped. And we thank you, Father, that even as we come to this place confessing one to another that we are sinners saved by grace and nothing more, that to say this is to say that we are so rich. Lord, thank you that we come now into the presence of a holy God through the blood of Jesus Christ, that we have this boldness, we have this access with confidence. We thank you, Lord, that you are with us. 
And that as we go from this place later this evening, we will not leave your presence. We will not be forced to wait until another time. But we know that you have promised that you are with us to the end of the age. You will never leave us and you'll never forsake us. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this place tonight to be thankful. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus. And Father, I ask that you would, in spite of me, use me, that you would run the heavens and come down in our meetings this weekend, that our Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy, would be exalted, and that we would come away from this weekend not commending men, but commending Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having read from Psalm 44, verse 1, I wonder if you can say what the psalmist said when he said, we have heard with our ears what you have done. Of course, we know our scriptures well enough to know some, many of the great deeds that the Lord has done. But I am thinking tonight of revival as it has played out in the years since the scriptures were written. And I would like to suggest to you tonight that many of us probably don't realize what is possible with God, perhaps in part because we are not in the scriptures enough, and in addition, because we are not familiar with revival history. Many of us are not asking for revival because we don't know what revival is. And we haven't heard the stories of what God has done when he has come down among the people. After giving an account of the revival in the Hebrides, Duncan Campbell asked the people a question. My dear people, do you understand what revival means? And then he asked, have you a conception of what it means to see God working. And I think that that is our problem. That in spite of our theology, in spite of our familiarity with the scriptures, and perhaps familiarity also with history, we, we don't have any such conception. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to begin by sharing with you some stories of revival, not in great detail, but just briefly, so that we can all say as we leave this place tonight, we have heard with our ears uh, what God has done. The first story comes uh, from one of many small communities, unknown places. Uh, The story is told of how a large crowd had gathered. It was more than the the church building could hold, which is typical in revival. And as they gathered outside, out of the building, it began to rain heavily. The minister, instead of telling the people to head inside, told them to, to remain still. Protect your Bibles, he said. He continued to preach with his Bible open. And the people sat on the ground in the pouring rain, as we're told, with rivulets of water running beneath them. So water running down, water running underneath them. And though soaked to the skin, they went on listening to the saving word of God. After a while, it stopped, apparently a long time. There were mothers there with their babies. No one stirred until the meeting was over. And according to the account, no one was anxious for it to conclude early. 
Or how about this? Suddenly there came over the people a terrible conviction of sin. So they had gathered in a building somewhere, and it says that the people throughout the church began to weep uncontrollably. In one place, the story is told of how as the people gathered and they were praying, a spirit of heaviness came upon the people for the sense of sin. And all of a sudden, over on one side of the building, someone began to weep. And in a moment, the whole assembly was weeping. Man after man would rise up, stand up in the midst of the assembly and confess his sins publicly. He would break down and he would weep and then he would throw himself to the floor and beat the floor in agony, agony of conviction. Another minister described this scene during revival. He said, did you ever witness 200 sinners with one accord in one place weeping for their sins? Until you have seen this, you have no adequate conception of the solemn scene. I felt as though I was standing on the verge of the eternal world while the floor under my feet was shaken by the trembling of anxious, anxious souls in view of a judgment to come. Think for a moment about the prayer meeting. The prayer meetings that you are familiar with and can hear this. When Robert Murray McShane returned home from a mission trip, he found that revival had struck. He said, I found 39 prayer meetings held in connection with the congregation. And five of these were conducted and attended entirely by small children. In 1805, revival began in the Sunday school. Let me say that again. We're not talking now about an adult Sunday school. In 1805, revival began in the Sunday school. Hundreds of children from eight years old and up might be seen, he said, in the congregation hearing the word with all the attention of the most devout Christian and bathed with tears. Children. In another revival, it was a group of young girls who met on subsequent nights Moms and dads, think about this. From 10 o'clock at night till 1 in the morning. And how did these young girls spend those hours? In praying, singing, weeping. And while those girls were there, the boys were gathered elsewhere. Praying, singing, weeping. One man tells of how the prayer meetings used to begin at 7 o'clock in the morning on Sunday mornings, but that was felt to be far too late for the great business that had to be transacted before the throne of God. And so, he said when revival came, the meetings, he said, now they begin at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they go on for almost seven days a week. So day after day after day, people can be found meeting at 6 in the morning for prayer. He said, some of you who are strangers may smile. Many of us did, but we don't now. It is that continuous, persevering, God-honoring, weekly campaign of prayer that has moved the mighty hand of God to pour upon this favored people the blessings of his grace in such rich abundance. And if ever, he said, if ever you should be asked the secret of this church's great spiritual prosperity, you can tell them of the prayer meetings and especially of the gatherings of God's people, 40 to 60 strong, 
at six or seven, summer, winter, wet, and fine to pray. Now listen to this. The same man talking about the revival that he experienced said, I, when the revival was happening, he said, I can't leave the building. Until 12 and 1 o'clock. He said, I've closed the service several times and yet it would break out again quite beyond my control. And that's not unusual in the revival in Ulster. The people had a three and a half hour meeting. The minister pronounced a benediction, but the people wouldn't leave. They continued to pray and they continued to praise. Later again, he pronounced the benediction again, but still they wouldn't leave. The minister finally left at 2 o'clock in the morning and still some remained praying, praising God. He said, the difficulty used to be to get the people into the church, but the difficulty now is to get them out of it. In revival, the churches are always overcrowded with people who only attend once, not to two services, but to one. You know why? Because the congregation will not turn out in the evening because they never went home from the morning service. You see, there aren't two services because they came in the morning and they stayed all day long. Now, I could go on and on and on and on. But instead, I want you to think now about our current spiritual poverty. Our current spiritual poverty. It seems to me that the greatest problem of this generation is that we think we are well. We are like Laodicea. And it isn't only that we are desperately lukewarm, but that in the meantime, we think we are rich. When actually, we're naked and poor and blind. And if we're honest, as we look out over the church and then take a moment to look inward, we are not a praying people. And what's worse is many of us are content that we should remain a prayerless people. Now, when you read the psalm that we read just a moment ago, if you looked with me, if you had your Bible still open, you can turn there or you can just listen in Psalm 44, verse 9. Remember, he began the psalm by saying, we remember, we've heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what you did. But now he presents God with the particular problem of the present. In verse 9 he says, But thou hast cast us off and put us to shame, and goest not forth with our armies. It's God it seems to have cast them off. He's put them to shame. He's not going with their armies. There's not success in battle. Verse 10, Thou makest us to turn back from the enemy. They which hate us spoil for themselves. Verse 12, thou sellest thy people for naught and dost not increase thy wealth by their price. Verse 13, thou makest a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to them that are round about us. Thou makest a byword. Now, isn't this very uh, appropriate? Is it not true that Christians in this nation are very much become a byword? A derision? Now, take a moment and think with me about the situation that we're confronted with in our society, in our country. I don't have to tell you about it, but let me go over it with you briefly. 
This is a time of unprecedented spiritual declension. We've got rampant immorality. Marriages all over the place in utter ruin. There are pornography addictions out of the church and in the church. Hedonism everywhere around us. We've got the abandonment of whole commandments. A world, a society, a nation that once considered itself in some ways a Christian nation doesn't even know how to list the commandments. And then you have the fruitlessness of so much preaching, preaching week by week by week that results in absolutely nothing. And then the recent and ongoing compromise with the state so that most of our evangelical and reformed churches have become what? State churches. You have the loss of our missionary burden. I can't help when I look back at the history books and read what happened in the 1800s, for example, and and the excitement that came over the church as the people were gripped with a burden for emissions, and there was this sense of conviction and hopefulness and belief that as they sent missionaries out, the whole world would be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And where are we at now? That missionary burden has been largely lost. And then at the root of it all, our utter prayerlessness. So that I can say with a fair degree of confidence that probably most of you haven't spent more than 30 minutes at one time alone in prayer on any given day this week. I don't have to know you personally to know the statistics. We are people that are half-hearted about God. Let me say that again. We are people half-hearted about God. Zealous and energetic in the pursuit of a dozen other causes, but half-hearted in our pursuit of God himself. And I think that we're so backward in our thinking We are so accustomed, having grown up in such a church, grown up in a lukewarm church, an impotent church, a church that hasn't for many generations had much of an impact upon the nation at all, that we think that the way to impact our country and our communities is by political change. And don't hear me wrong, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should not be engaged in political efforts But the mistake that we make is to think that the way that we can change our country is through politics. You have to understand that there is a problem at the the very root of the whole thing. And the root problem is the wickedness of this generation. I remember hearing one man put it this way. He said, you think of a, uh, a tree that's plagued with disease. And you have one branch that represents abortion. You have another branch that represents transgenderism and all the other sexual perversions. And over here, another branch that represents, well, maybe say vaccine mandates. And we could begin to name them all. And you chop off one branch, the tree is still there. You change their mind on abortion and you end this plague on our nation. What have you done? You've saved a lot of lives and that's all you've done. What have you accomplished for the kingdom if that's all you've done? If that's all you've done, have you won their hearts? 
for King Jesus? Are they being added to the kingdom of our King? Can we say of those people that we've convinced with some intellectual arguments no longer to do this wicked thing or that perverted thing, can we say of those people that they're now living for the glory of our Redeemer? Not at all. Can't say that at all. But now, brothers and sisters in Christ, isn't that what you want? You strip everything else away. Isn't it true that what you want at bottom is that they would live for the glory of your Redeemer? You see, if all we manage to do is to change some minds and change some policies, some social reform perhaps here and there, solve one problem after another, we're just going to find more problems springing up in their place. We've got to get to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is man's enmity against God. That all around us there are people who are strangers to Jesus Christ, who are walking through this world blind to his, his glory and his majesty and his holiness. So hear me carefully on this. Please understand, when you find somebody who has been sucked into this perverted transgenderism, as somebody who is living a homosexual life, and somebody else who has given themselves their bodies over to abortion, when you think about something like feminism, or you look at the, the, the way in which we are confronted in our society with a host of different e e evils. What's the reason for it all? What's the explanation? What's behind it all? The, the explanation for it is that they are strangers to Jesus Christ. They are aliens to him. They do not know him. They are without God in this world. And they need to be saved. And until they're saved and living for the glory of Jesus Christ, we've done nothing. What we want for them, if we are Christian, is that they would love him and nothing less. That they would live for his glory and nothing less. That they would recognize that he's worthy and nothing less than that. And so live for his honor. But I'll tell you the reason for what's wrong outside of the church is what's going on inside the church. And that is this, that we are so much like the world. We are so much like the world. I think even at our best, and if we are honest tonight, I know it's painful to, to talk about it this way and to start off a weekend like this on a negative note, but I think many of us are just simply strangers to the things that we hear about from the past. It sounds alien, almost like we're listening to a fable. Strange. Almost, almost impossible to believe. Because, you know, most ministers, and there are a number of them here tonight, most ministers have found that until perhaps recently, they had to beg people to come to prayer meetings. When was the last time you heard of a group of young people, 9, 10, and 11 years of age, meeting together of their own accord for prayer? 
to seek God. Not gather to pray because grandma's sick. Not that there's anything wrong with praying for grandma. But meeting together to seek the face of God. Wouldn't that stir your hearts to hear such a thing? I think many of our churches, if they, they were to tell us what was happening, really happening, they would tell us that they're actually losing their young people. They're losing children. Many people are no longer interested in the Sunday worship, let alone the prayer meeting. And then think about what happens at your church. It has been a time of refreshing for many of our congregations. I know that. But when was the last time you saw a congregation melted in tears, not at a funeral, but over their sin? Some of you have been to a football game. So it's not an alien thing to imagine shouts, right? You can imagine what it would be like to hear men shouting because you've heard them shout before. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in the presence of men and women shouting for God? And I don't mean some worked up charismatic nonsense, but I, I mean really, truly overcome by a sight of the majesty of King Jesus. When was the last time you found a congregation that simply refused to go home, not because they were being difficult, but because they, they wanted more of God? I think the truth is that often it's the opposite, that we find that our people are too quick to get out and to go home. And so there's a crisis that's confronting us, isn't there? There's a crisis. I hope you see that. Well, it's good to be here, but let's be honest. We are faced with a crisis. There is so little desire for God among us. And maybe some of you have come tonight and, and, and God knows your heart. You've come here to see some friends, to find some like-minded men. Have you come for God? So often we're happy to be together if we're good, having some good Christian fun and, uh, and that's about it. We're content to be at a distance from God. I think that's why often our prayer lives are something we're a bit ashamed of. I think that's why our prayer meetings are often the most unpopular meetings in our churches. Because the only one to entice people to prayer is God. And I think all, all, all too often our prayers are self-centered, aren't they? If God were to come to us like he did to Moses and he, and he were to say to us, listen, I'm not pleased with this generation. And we were to say, well, we were, we were not surprised to hear this. And we're not pleased with the generation either. And then God just said to us, well, I'm not pleased with this generation, so I'm not going with you. But here's what I will do as a concession. You can have all of this. I will send an angel to lead you. There are places you need to go and he will lead you. And I will give you victory over the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and the rest of them. I'll give you victory over Justin Trudeau and his liberals. 
I'll give you victory over all those vaccine crazy people. I'll give you victory over the transgender madness that has crept into our nation. I'll give you victory over all of that. And I'll even give you the promised land, this nation that you've been dreaming of, a a country, a Canada that you've heard of perhaps from your grandparents' generation. I'll give you even that. Just not me. I think we'd take it, wouldn't we? I think if God were to come like that to us and to say to all those things I'll give you, but I won't go, I think many of us would be quite happy to take all those gifts, even without God. And I'll tell you why I think that. Because if you listen to our praying, you would notice we weren't asking for more of God in the first place. And this is the crying sin of the church in this generation. That we, are, we have so little appetite for God. It's not a problem of appetite. The problem is the appetite for God. That we are, have a hunger for this and a hunger for that and a hunger for many things, but not a hunger for the one. The one alone who can satisfy us and the one alone who is worthy. And that confronted with the church's poverty... We can talk about it, we can have a conversation about it, and we go home and carry on as if nothing had been told to us, as if, we, as if nothing were happening. And instead of weeping, we're laughing. I, I urge you to think this through. We are living in a time, as I've been saying, of spiritual crisis. And I don't think there's a soul here that would deny that. It is a spiritual wilderness. The temple of God is in many ways in ruins, isn't it? Spiritually speaking. And I'm talking about the broader church. As I look out over Canada, it seems to me the temple is in ruins. And we're laughing. And sometimes we talk about the failures of other men as if it were funny. We get together, and when we ought to be weeping and humbling ourselves, we're laughing. If God were to put marks upon the foreheads of those in this generation that sigh, you know, as he did in the days of Ezekiel, if you were to put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and cry for the sins of this generation, for the desperate condition of the church, I'm afraid he wouldn't find very many to mark. So what do we do? We know what God can do. We're confronted with the church's lukewarm condition. What do we do? I'll try not to spend too much on this, but let me just say briefly, one of the things we found studying, and I expect you're expecting this, I'm talking about revival and prayer. What have we found when we have looked at the history of revival? That almost invariably there's a connection between prayer and revival. So our problem is actually a simple one. We do not have because we do not ask. There's an old word that they used to use, it's a word. Uh, that isn't used as much anymore, importunate. They talked about being importunate in prayers. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right. 
But the idea is that when you pray, you ought to pray in a way as if you meant it, as if taking hold of God and not letting him go. If, if you were to survey the prayers of many of the people in the church today, I think you'd find that we aren't that. We are not importunate. We pray briefly, often kind of carelessly. And there is often a measure of hypocrisy in our prayers because when we pray for things, there are things we ask for that perhaps we don't really want. And if we were to pray for a revival, many of us would have to admit there are things that would happen in revival we don't want to happen. Because we're a bit addicted to the things of the world ourselves. And if revival meant that I no longer did this and did that and did the other thing because I was so taken up with God, perhaps I don't want that after all. Now, really, really briefly, I want to give you three examples of the connection between importunate prayer, persevering prayer, and revival. Number one, in Hebrides, in the Hebrides, when things were at their worst, it was two women who prayed twice a week through the night. So two women determined that they would meet together twice a week and pray all through the night, begging God for revival. Revival came. Second, in another case, it was found that six months prior to the revival, 60 members had met every Monday evening to pray for nothing but revival. So everything else was off the table. You can't pray about it. We're just going to pray for revival. And then third, before the Welsh revival, if you've heard of that one, it was four young men, all under the age of 18, who had gone into the mountains every night for months to pray for the church. So let's now take heed to ourselves for a moment. The question for us isn't, can we pray? That's something we all can do. A tremendous privilege that Christ has purchased for us. We can all pray. The question is, are we in earnest? So I want to give you tonight in closing three basic rules. And perhaps you're uncomfortable with hearing the word rules, but what I simply mean is this, three practices that are absolutely critical if we would see revival in our generation. And number one, we need to practice prayer in all of its forms. And particularly, we need to practice private prayer. Jesus spoke of the prayer closet, a place where you get alone. Nobody can see you. They don't know you're there. And so you can have a reputation for a lot of things, but you can't have a reputation for prayer because God's the only one who knows. So a place where you pray alone. You know, Jesus often prayed with his disciples, but he still sometimes prayed whole nights alone. He was often found early in the morning before the sun came up alone in prayer. I read an old book on revival, and I came across this beautiful quote, and I want you to hear this. It's so encouraging. This man who had experienced revival in his generation said, we must never think that our individual efforts may not be attended with splendid results. Perhaps he was thinking of Elijah. He said, we may, in the retirement of our chamber, wherever that may be, that bedroom or that closet, We may, in the retirement of our chamber, achieve victories that will tell on the destinies of the nation. Now, wouldn't that be wonderful if some man here were to take this all very seriously and get alone with God, and it would have an impact upon the nation of Canada? 
The whole destiny of the country turned around because of one man, one woman, one young boy, one young girl crying out to God for, for revival. Number two, we are taught in the scripture that God yields to, as I already told, talked about, that, that kind of praying that is importunate praying. And let me give you a biblical example. It's the one that Jesus talked about. Of course, you're familiar with the story of a man named Jacob who wrestled with God and prevailed. But let's think for a moment about the parable of that persistent widow. We know her as the persistent widow because she persisted. How did she succeed? Did she succeed because she had a, a, a listening ear? Did she succeed because the judge just happened to be inclined to listen to poor old widows? No, she succeeded precisely because she persisted. She, in fact, had an unsympathetic judge. She had the ear of a man who wasn't inclined to listen, who wasn't of a character to be kind or compassionate. But the reality is this woman so pestered and badgered the man that finally he gave in. She kept coming and coming again until finally he gave her what she was asking for. She, in a sense, she wore him down. But our judge is not an unsympathetic judge. What does the scripture say? It says that he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's touched with them. He loves us with an everlasting love. And he's, he said himself, if you ask anything in my name, I will give it to you. You remember the preface to that parable? Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And that's the problem that we often have, isn't it? The question Jesus asked at the end of the parable is one we need to ask ourselves. When the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, will he find a church? Will he find Christians, men and women and children who have the kind of faith that will persevere in the place of prayer, who will keep asking and asking and asking until they get the answer? One man said that uh, when you're finding that your, your praying is getting, you're getting worn out, inclined to give over, he said, keep going. The chariot wheel grows warm by rolling. The chariot wheel grows warm by rolling, and many will be able to testify that their desire for prayer has increased as they have prayed more. I honestly believe that one of the reasons so often our prayers are not answered is because we do not pray long, we do not pray hard. An old preacher said this, it is to those who by their unconquerable ardor and inflexible perseverance compel him to turn aside that he gives the sweetest glimpses of his reconciled countenance. Wasn't the way of Jesus so often to make his, as if he were going to pass by and not to answer the first time? Son of David, have mercy on us. Nothing. Son of David, have mercy on us. Well, I think what's often lacking in our prayers is the the failure to persevere. We are so quick to give up. And then lastly, third, Jesus taught us that there's a kind that comes out by prayer and fasting. It's interesting to me that in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a description of the Christian, that you have a section devoted by the Lord Jesus Christ to fasting. 
It's that important. J.C. Ryle explained by saying that what Jesus was teaching when he said this kind comes out by prayer and fasting is that Satan's kingdom is not to be pulled down without diligence and without pains. I think as we look back to the last year and some of the things that we've seen, I think we, we've been confronted with a church that has had it too easy, that's come to expect to get into the kingdom lightly and easily without a pain, without too much trouble. And I think often that the reality is that we take that same philosophy into the place of prayer. And the thinking is that it could be done with an easy wish and a brief prayer. The disciples thought that this boy that they were dealing with could be delivered from this demon without any effort at all. And perhaps it sounds noble because, of course, they recognized who it was they were dealing with. They're dealing with God who created the ends of the earth. They're dealing with one with whom nothing is impossible. So why not a brief prayer and we're done? Jesus called them perverse and faithless. It was unbelief. It was unbelief. Brothers and sisters, the problem with the church today in this case is that we are awash with unbelief. We have lists of things that we want a little bit. I would like to have revival a little bit. It'd be nice. But we think we can say a brief prayer and it's done. So that most of us hardly know what it is to fast. We say the prayer. And then we finish it off with, thy will be done. And then when we don't get what we ask, we chalk it up to the sovereignty of God. It's unbelief. Can I ask you then tonight, do you want God to rend the heavens and come down? I ache for this but not every day. There are many times when I've had a half wish that we would have revival. Do we really want God to come down in this generation? Do you want it to be so that as people enter the church buildings, it would be as in the days of Ananias and Sapphira that they on half wouldn't dare to come in. And in coming into the place, they would fall on their faces before the presence of the living God. Overcome with a sense of his majesty. I know many of you have asked for these things and you've prayed. Some of you are heartsick over the, well, heartsick over the nation, heartsick over the condition of the, the church all around us. But let's be then frank, let's honestly admit that maybe many of us have this problem. That we didn't think there was any point in waiting in prayer. We didn't think there was any point in tarrying and tarrying and fasting. Because you didn't think that if finally, maybe if you persevered, that maybe God might relent. And so why would you keep asking? So you did what you thought was the right thing to do. You asked for the thing. He said, you know, it'd be nice if we could have some revival. Perhaps you put it in a different way than that. You prayed for it, and then that was, that was it. You were done. 
Very simply, very honestly, you told the Lord in, in prayer, uh, we, we need revival. Revive us again. And then you are done. You're not desperate. Oh, church, when will we become desperate for these things? When will we come to the place that we're like Jacob? We take hold of God and say, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And I'm not speaking about those times when we've been desperate for somebody that's on the verge of death. Because I know that instinct in many of us when it's a loved one, then then we begin to cry out to God. Then we're up in the night. Then we're up in the morning. But to pray for the church of Jesus Christ in this generation, to beseech the throne of grace for a lukewarm church. Congregation, there's no weeping among us. There's no tears. There's no self-denial. There's no effort. We are a lazy generation. That's why we haven't got what we've asked. Jesus calls it unbelief, a perverse and unbelieving generation. And so tonight I want to urge you, I plead with you, pray believing in the one who answers prayer. Because you have the scriptures before you. And you can say to God, I'm not asking that I may consume it upon my lusts. I'm not asking for a new car. I'm not asking for a new job. I'm not asking you to bless me with health. I'm asking for your kingdom to come. You see, when you're asking for this, you're asking for all the things God has put within you. You want honor for the king of kings. And you're asking God to do what he promised to do. Hadn't he said, hasn't he said he'd come down like rain upon mown grass? Hasn't he said that the kingdom of Jesus will increase world without end? The men would crown him with their praises. Jesus would get the reward of his suffering. Read Isaiah 53. Every time I'm reminded of what Jesus went through and then to think that Jesus will receive the reward of his suffering. That's what I want. If I could have nothing else, it would be that. He would have that. Christians, doesn't your heart tonight echo that same desire? Isn't it true that if, if it came down to it, that you would let everything else go but that? That Jesus, who went to the cross for you, should get his reward? So take these things to him in the place of prayer. And don't let him go. Persist in the place of prayer. He isn't so hard to move as the unjust to judge. You have a sympathetic high priest. And if asking, revival seems to tarry. Can I suggest tonight that perhaps it is time for us to take it to God in fasting? Perhaps that's what we need. That as of old, a group of men and women maybe children would determine in a sense to put on sackcloth and ashes to put aside their food and to drink and to cry out to God and ask him to rend the heavens and come down. Amen. Let's pray.
our Father. We pray that you would forgive us all our hypocrisy. You know what we really are. And we ask that you would help us to be men and women and children who seek God. Father, we ask your forgiveness. Please forgive us for our laziness after you, for our lack of desire for you, and our carelessness with regard to your kingdom, with your church, and the cause of Zion. Father, I pray that this gathering here would be a people who do not want ease in Zion, but a people who are burdened, who have a zeal for your church and for your glory. And we beg of you now, Lord, put that within us. These things are not things that we can stir up within ourselves. And so, Lord, we confess that it isn't just the church outside these doors that is naked and poor and blind, but many of us tonight are also naked, poor, and blind. We aren't what we ought to be. We aren't zealous as we ought to be. And so, Father, please help us, change us, renew us, revive us. We pray that as we continue in these meetings, Lord, would you please banish from us all pride, all worldliness. Help us to humble ourselves before you. And as children, come to sit at the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that he who has done all for us would get his reward. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.